Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus, if you remember, set his face toward Jerusalem, meaning he focused on his destiny to suffer on, and die on the cross. Uh, and from that verse, from chapter 9, verse 51, uh, until like the middle of uh, chapter 19, he'll be doing fewer miracles and a lot more teaching as he's journeying toward Jerusalem uh, to show what saving faith really is. Now, three times throughout this journey, from 951 to the middle of chapter 19, uh, he's going uh, he's gonna, to, or Luke is going to remind us that Jesus is set toward Jerusalem. So he'll say that in chapter 9, verse 51, that starts it off. He'll say it again today in chapter 13, verse 22. And then later on, he'll say it again in, in, uh, in chapter 17, verse 11. And these reminders that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, they're like these bookmarks to kind of, uh, to get you back on, on track to go, oh yeah, he's set on his destiny to go to the cross. And they kind of mark out these three segments of his journey. Uh, we've already gone through that first segment, which is chapter 951 all the way to chapter 13, verse 21. Each segment will cover the same kinds of themes. Uh, you know, Jesus' surprisingly dogmatic position on who's with him, whom he accepts, and who's against him, whom he rejects. Uh, each segment will also cover the eternal perspective, keeping your eye on heaven, uh, and, uh, and as well as the openness of salvation, the invitation to salvation for everybody, not just Israel, not just, uh, not just rich, healthy Jewish men, but for everyone, Savior to all. Now, today starts the, segment, the second segment of Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem, which it will be chapter 13, verse 22 to chapter 17, verse 10. Uh, we'll get through like a third of it today, um, and uh, it, what we'll see is in five consecutive passages, Luke is going to uh, line out these scenes and stories that highlight Jesus' stand against Israel's current religion. Now, he keeps picking on Israel, and the reason why is because Israel was the nation he was in. If he were doing that right now, he'd be talking about the United States. It's really just the world. He's really just speaking against worldliness, and in, uh, in the context where he was in. He was in uh, among God's covenant people, the ethnic people of Israel, and so he's speaking against Israel's current situation and the way that they were spiritually. Judaism has gone astray from God's design, and Jesus was not shy on calling them out for it. And so we'll go from chapter 13, verse 22, all the way through chapter 14, verse uh, 35, uh, and we'll see five surprises for Israel. Five surprises for Israel. Now, uh, I had originally put the structure up as an outline, but then I realized that would spoil the surprises. So instead, I just put the chapter boundaries up. Thank you, Marcus, for editing that on the fly. Um, and so now you can just get the, the, ver the chapter and verse boundaries, and then each, I don't know, it just seems more thematic to reveal the surprises as we go. None of the surprises will surprise you, though. You'll be like, I knew that. But that's okay, all right? Let's start with surprise number one, which is in chapter 13, verse 22 to verse 30, and that's Israel's religion doesn't save. Israel's religion, which is Judaism, Israel's religion doesn't save. Now, this second segment of Jesus' journey to, uh, to go to his destiny in Jerusalem, it starts with a reminder of what he's doing. So look at verse 22. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then someone said to him, da, 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 don't, don't worry about that part uh, just yet, okay? Uh, Jesus is on his way teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And there's that reminder, okay? Uh, and 
you know, he's been saying all this stuff like, if you're not with me, you're against me. And, uh, and only those who, who repent are accepted. Only those who repent are saved. So this, this very strong language comes out. Someone starts noticing this. And if you go back to, to the verse again, it says in verse 23, someone said to Jesus, he said, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? Now, this is, a, this is a guy that's kind of realizing that Jesus' message requires total self-abandonment. You can't be a Christian by just trying to add some faith to your normal life. You can't sprinkle him on or squeeze him in. He replaces the whole thing. And you, you have to live completely in surrender to him. That's the, that's the term that, that gets used a lot, to surrender to him. And you have to be on the same mission he's on to save others. That's what it means to follow him, to do what he does, to have the same purpose he has, which is to save others. And that weeds out very, very quickly. It weeds out the people uh, of false religions, fine, but when you get to just people in the church, it even weeds out people at church who are unwilling to be part of that, unwilling to give 100% to Jesus, unwilling to believe unwilling to worship, unwilling to commit, unwilling to give, unwilling to confess, unwilling to evangelize, unwilling to submit, unwilling to serve. These are the, the basic commands to every Christian to put Jesus on display for the church, and they come thematically throughout the Bible. It weeds out anyone that thinks that 100% is too much to give to Jesus. And so this guy who's watching Jesus and hearing his, his messages, naturally asks, will those who are saved be few? He understood Jesus' message. He, uh, no, one, uh, no one can be saved just by going to weekly worship, synagogue for them, or church for us. You can't just be saved because you grew up in a believing family, Jewish for them, Christian for us. Like, those things aren't going to do it. Now, as a side note... As a side note, uh, saved from what? Lord, will those who are saved be few? Saved from what? Churches today, they try to save you from poor self-esteem, from uh, despair and depression, from injustice, etc. Like, a lot of churches have kind of their thing going on. Uh, and that's, that's just not salvation. You need to be saved from hell. You need to be saved from judgment for your sins. And just so you know, that judgment comes from God. God is the judge. And Jesus will take over as judge. It's, uh, it's, it's something that no one in the world can save you from. Like, no one on earth can save you from God's wrath. No one can save you from God's judgment. That's just not going to happen. No one can save you from uh, God's hand. So God is judge, but also salvation can only then come from God. So... God, has to, God is your judge and God is your savior. You need to be saved from God by God. That's, that's a very honest admission. He will punish your sin, and yet he will still rescue you if you repent and trust in Jesus. That's what we're talking about when we say saved. Okay, side note over, right? Uh, so Jesus is going to answer this guy, and everyone who, who uh, wonders... The, the same thing is going to get this question answered. Will, will those who are saved be few? Uh, and Jesus says, well, you, it, it's tough. And not everybody makes it. 
So watch what he says, um, verse 23. And he said to them, uh, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he'll answer you, I do not know you. I do not know where you come from. And then you'll begin to say, uh, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now, notice here, Jesus says to strive uh, to enter through the narrow door. He says, strive, agonizomai, from which we get the word agonize. Agonize to enter through the narrow door. Another way we translate that word is fight, battle, fight your way into the narrow door. Because being a Christian is a fight. As much as it's a, there's a certain part that's kind of passive where you just receive the grace of God. You receive the love of Christ. You receive the work of, of Jesus on the cross. That's true. And then for the rest of your life, it's a fight. It's, it's, it's a weird little paradox. You know, it's, it's a battle. If you think it's easy to be a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. You haven't figured out what it means. The Christian life is, is called the good fight in 1 Timothy 6, and in 2 Timothy 4, right? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith, right? What are you fighting? Why is it called a fight? What are you fighting? You're fighting yourself. It's a constant fight of repentance, self-denial. Isn't that the, the, the message that keeps coming up, right? It's self-denial, surrendering yourself, taking up your cross, right? It's obeying instead of sinning or being disciplined, Caring for others, all that kind of stuff. It's a fight to give up your dreams, a fight to give up your trust in money or in health or anything that comes before obedience to Jesus, your relationship, whatever. Jesus said you have to strive, you have to agonize, you have to fight to enter through the narrow door. That means there's a, a very specific narrow door. There's a very particular way to make it into salvation. If you try by any other way, you will fail. No matter how well-intentioned you are, the door shuts when you die and you're either in the master's house, which is God's kingdom, or you're out and it doesn't open after that. Inside this house, in, in the way that Jesus tells it, inside this house, which will be, you know, he calls it the kingdom of God in verse 29, right? Inside this house, uh, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets from the Old Testament you have all of them there too. All the believers that you know were believers, the people that, that worshiped God. And then it says people from east and west and north and south. And that very much indicates the other nations, which if you're not, if you're not a Jewish person and you're from a, a different nation, you're a Gentile. So it's from the Gentiles. Jesus is saying that the people who are saved will include Gentiles and the Jews are in danger of missing out. 
And it's such a flip. That's not what they expected at all. They're all, uh, you know, they're, they're all expecting to be saved. But instead, he's, Jesus says, you're going to be on the outside looking in. And you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, and all these Gentiles. They're all reclining at the table in the kingdom. Reclining at the table, meaning lying down in front of a, a table. A table is like a U shape uh, when you have a banquet. And like everyone just kind of lies down, sorry, on their left, on their left elbow and then eats at the right hand. Uh, you know, it's low tables on the ground. That banquet imagery is the, uh, that's the most common imagery of, uh, in Jewish literature of salvation, of celebrating salvation, saying like it's over. We're victorious and we're, we're part of God's kingdom and we get to celebrate paradise with him. And it would always be a banquet. So by now it's no surprise to you that the narrow door, the only way to enter salvation is repentance, right? It's repentance and trust. Both kind of the same thing, right? Repentance is turning away from sin. Trust is placing your, uh, your hope in Jesus, right? For uh, so many of the Jews in Israel, they weren't interested in giving up their lives. I mean, they, they like to go to church or synagogue or whatever you want to call it. But they, they like to go to worship service. They're moral. They go on a weekly basis. It's part of their cultural training. They just don't want to devote their lives. Like, I don't want to tell other people about Jesus. I don't want to push that on them. I don't want to give up drunkenness. I don't want to have to change my lifestyle. I don't want to use my money for God instead of indulge my own wants. And of those people, Jesus says, they're going to knock on the door and say, but we went to church. We didn't do any of the big sins. We liked the sermons. We sang the songs. And then... Jesus will say to them, I don't know you. I don't know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And they go to weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're rejected. That means they go to this perpetual state of conscious, unending punishment of grief and pain and worthlessness. That, uh, the way that, they, that Jesus says that they'll, they'll talk about it, that's it you know, they'll be like, um, uh, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. That's what the Jews will say. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And here's the thing. Jesus is teaching on their streets in these passages. And as we go on through this chapter, he'll be eating and drinking in their presence. He's going to be at a banquet. And he's saying, you missed it. Just because you invited me over for lunch, or just because you listened to my sermon out on the street, doesn't mean you're saved. All the church going, all the sermons, all the songs, they amount to nothing if it's just external. Jesus expects an internal response, an internal repentance from sin, an internal trust in him. And Israel didn't expect this. Jesus says the Jews are in danger of missing out on salvation, and the Gentiles are, are going to be brought in instead. This would have been so jarring for the crowds, because Israel believed they were God's people, and they were secure in their salvation. Let me show you some verses on this. Isaiah 45, verse 17. It says, but Israel is saved by the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. But Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. Or Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. And that's talking about God's people, Israel. Like when you look at verses like that, you know, it made the Jews think, oh, we're saved. We're going to have the land. We're good. We're secure. We're safe. We got our ticket to heaven. And they didn't know that those verses 
we're talking about the end times after Israel has gone through serious persecution and stuff. At some point, Israel will finally repent and finally realize that Jesus is the Savior and finally come to saving faith. And then they'll inherit the kingdom. For now, Israel's religion doesn't save. It's not working. They went wrong somewhere, and they're not going to be in the kingdom. Surprise number two, Israel's capital is doomed. Israel's capital is doomed, verses 31 to 35. Let's start in verse 31. It says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Right? This is happening at that very hour. It's uh, moment to moment here. Uh, Pharisees come up and they say, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. And you have to wonder, since when did the Pharisees care about Jesus' safety? Uh, they, they don't, right? I mean, we know that. They want to kill him. They want him silenced. They want him gone. They want him dead. Uh, and we know in like Matthew 22 or Mark 3 or Mark 12, they worked with Herod. They, they aligned themselves with the Herodians. Herod doesn't even know that much about Jesus. If you remember from chapter 9, he's perplexed. He's like, who's this Jesus guy? I don't know who he is. Some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah, whatever. Uh, so he isn't likely to be trying to kill Jesus. Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. We don't have any like moments where that's recorded. Maybe he doesn't like the fact that this guy's getting so popular. So, But it doesn't matter whether or not the Pharisees are telling the truth or lying. It, it, what, what's going on here is that they're faking concern. They're like, oh, you better get out of here because your life is in danger, right? And they're hoping that Jesus will be intimidated. He'll be scared for his life and he'll run away. But Jesus is not intimidated. This is how he responds in verse 32. Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, stop there for a second. Clearly, Jesus is not scared, right? He says, go tell that fox I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until I'm done. That's basically what he's saying, right? That, uh, when he says fox, fox, you know, for us, we think fox is like a, you know, that's like, oh, he's clever, clever as a fox or something like that. It could be that, but foxes in the Bible were talked about as a destructive nuisance, right? They ruin your vineyards. Oh, I hate these foxes. You know, let's, let's go catch these foxes because they're ruining our vineyards. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, and Song of Solomon uh, chapter 2, verse 15. This had to surprise the Jews, right? Because you're not supposed to curse your ruler, you're not supposed to talk bad about the people who govern you. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You're not supposed to do that as God's people. That's the opposite of submission. That's the opposite of uh, humility. And it kind of says the same thing in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20. And you see the same thing even in Acts chapter 23, verses 3 through 5. The apostle Paul, he kind of says something mean about, uh, about all these Pharisees and stuff. And they're like, hey, you're going to say that about our high priest? And he's like, I didn't know that was the high priest. Uh, and so I shouldn't have said that because I shouldn't curse my ruler. And he, he actually quotes, you know, back from Exodus to correct himself and be like, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't be saying that. So even the apostle Paul didn't do stuff like that. We should be more careful even on how we talk about people who rule over our government. The prophets spoke, uh, you know, they, prophets spoke uh, from, from God. They revealed God's word. They revealed God's will. 
And so prophets were always given the authority to speak against the rulers. The prophets would do that. And oftentimes those rulers were in Jerusalem, so they'd go to Jerusalem and speak out against those rulers. Now Jesus, he uses this weird uh, Jewish expression. He's like, today, tomorrow, and the third day. Or today, tomorrow, and the day after that. Right? It's a Jewish figure of speech. It's an expression that just means doing something to completion. Today, tomorrow, and the third day. I'm going to do it. From A to Z, all the way to the end. That's, that's kind of their, their expression. doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but, you know, it does to them. Some people think, is that like an allusion to the, the resurrection, the third day he was raised from the dead? Uh, maybe, but I don't think so. I don't know. Verse 32 says Jesus has to cast out demons, perform cures, and finish his course on the third day. Right? So the third day is when it's finished. Well, John chapter 19 says on the cross, he says it is finished. Right? So I think that that means he'll keep doing healings and miracles, but not forever. He has a set time for when that work comes to an end. That set time is the cross. That's when his work finishes. Verse 33 says the third day he completes his work. That's when he perishes in Jerusalem like many of the other prophets. Right? He perishes on the cross. So whatever that third day means in this expression, I think he's talking about the cross because that's what he has his mind set on, his destiny in Jerusalem. He clearly indicates, by the way, that he's a prophet. He uh, reveals God's word and, and God's will, and he rebukes rulers. He's like, all prophets need to die in Jerusalem, so I need to die in Jerusalem. And so there it is. Most prophets went to Jerusalem rebuking leaders, and that's where they were killed. That's where they died. Jesus, that, that happens so much in the Old Testament that uh, Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 21 and Luke 20 on how Jerusalem is just like, their career is just prophet killing. They just kill prophets all the time. That's, you know, uh, he, he says that that's like descriptive of, of Jerusalem. So Jesus kind of shrugs off the Pharisees' threat of Herod. He knows his course to the cross. That's where he's going, and he's going to finish it from A to Z. Day one, day two, day three, he's going to do it. See, he says all of that, and then he, like, he comes to this lament in verse 34. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel, right? The city where God dwelt among the people, where they... Uh, it's a city where they disgrace him most directly. God loved this city. It's from here that salvation should have flowed out to the whole world. But Jerusalem is representative of the whole nation. And this capital city is representative of the whole nation of Israel. And in this great city is where God was, you know, dwelling in the temple. And in this great city is where they killed God's prophets. Jesus speaks for God, and he's, he's like, I, I long to care for you. I long to protect you. I wanted to take you under my wing, but you didn't want it. You weren't willing, and so they won't get it. They want to get out from God's protection? Fine. Then they are forsaken. No blessing, no protection. The Jews will be targets, and you'll see that throughout history. Uh, I tried to look up how many times uh, someone attempted genocide on the Jews, I just tried to look it up, and I just I couldn't count it. Just how many things came up, you know. 
there, was way, uh, there were so many incidences where people were like, we need to annihilate the Jews out of our land or something. And this is just going to keep continuing. The Jews will continue to be persecuted until they turn and understand that Jesus is the Savior. They'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118. The Jews will be persecuted without God's intervention until they see Jesus for who he is, Messiah and Savior. Right? They and, and they won't see him until that happens. The, the until means, well, that's absolutely going to happen. It's not, uh, you won't see me unless maybe this happens. It's not that. It's until. Like, you, this is what's going to happen. And then until this time, this time is going to happen when Israel will repent, when Israel will be saved. He's talking about ethnic Israel. It's not a, a figure for the church or anything like that. It's, he's talking about apostate Israel, wayward Israel, unbelieving Israel. They will repent. They will be saved. And Jesus will return. Israel didn't expect this. Jesus uh, exposes their guilt of killing every prophet in the great city, and so Israel's capital is doomed. Surprise number three, Israel's leadership, uh, Israel's leaders are hypocrites. Israel's leaders are hypocrites. That's chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 14. And this is going to take us into a, a, a meal. It's, it's like a, a lunch or a dinner scene. Maybe, uh, and so he's going to interact at this Pharisee's house. Look at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took the guy and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, the Pharisees, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to these things. Now, it, it's so weird watching Pharisees invite, invite Jesus to dinner. Again, there's like this moment where they seem like they like him, you know? At first, they're like, watch out, Herod wants to kill you. You should, you should run away. And now they're like, why don't you come and have, have dinner with us or have lunch with us, whatever. Because we know that they want him dead, but, but they act like friends. Maybe some of them are genuinely curious, sure, but some of them want to catch him, make a mistake. And they got to look innocent doing this, so they invite him to dinner, and they're watching him carefully. And uh, the one that, that, uh, that invited him is a ruler of the Pharisees, so he's like a member of the Sanhedrin probably, or just a super high-ranking arch-Pharisee, or I don't know what that is. Right, but just he's a high-ranking Pharisee. Fine. There's a there's a guy there with dropsy, which is like this uh, condition where you retain a lot of water, a lot of bodily fluids, so you're like super swollen. Will Jesus heal this man? Meaning, will he do work on the Sabbath? And of course, many would would uh, see this guy, this this man with dropsy, and they would think, well, God is punishing this man. You know, it, it, it parallels with the woman that we looked at uh, in chapter thirteen, verses ten through seventeen. The woman with, that had a demon that she couldn't straighten her back. Uh, and like chapter thirteen that we saw last week, Jesus asks, "Okay, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful or not to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, since all of you would." absolutely, and immediately rescue your kid. You'd, you'd pull him up out of a, a hole or, or, or your animal. You'd do that, right? You would work. You would exert yourselves on the Sabbath if it were to save your kid or your animal. 
So is, is it okay if I show compassion and, and heal this guy? And everybody's quiet. You can feel, you know, the, the tension of that. But you can also tell that this is a very shortened story. It's right to the point with no details. Uh, because first, we've seen this multiple times in the book of Luke. And so he can kind of shortcut the story. But really, he gets you to the punchline, which is the fact that the Pharisees were silenced. They couldn't say anything. Uh, what Luke is doing is setting, uh, setting this thing up to show you that they don't have the upper hand. Jesus has the upper hand. He's, he's the one that's showing them their shortcoming in their understanding of the Bible, their shortcoming in their character, their shortcoming in their spiritual principles. Jesus is doing something from God, and the, the Pharisees are trying to trap him. And when Jesus just talks plainly about what's going on, the Pharisees have nothing to say because they have nothing good to, uh, to say. So Jesus is in the superior uh, position, and he takes advantage of this by then launching these two different like parables to expose their selfishness. Watch in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Right? He saw how they chose places of honor, and he said to them, verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's the, the, the real lesson, right? Jesus is calling the Pharisees out on their lack of humility. His parable sounds a lot like Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. I'll just put it up there. Right? It says, don't, uh, don't put yourself forward in the, pre the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. He's just applying a, a proverb from the book of Proverbs. And uh, it, it's, not a hard figure, uh, figure, uh, it's not hard to figure out uh, because Jesus is not trying to teach the Pharisees some kind of tip or some trick or some life hack on like, hey, you want to be honored? Do this. You know, three ways that you can be honored when you go to a banquet. Sit at the lowest seat and then someone will move you up. Then everyone thinks you're honored. Like, he's not trying to really help them get honored. He's not. He's calling them out because he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he saw how they're all taking places of, of honor. They're all sitting down just assuming that they belong in the honored seats. So what this parable really is about is, a, uh, is how we relate to God to be honored by God, right? Because th that's who's going to humble and exalt. God's the one that's going to, to figure all that stuff out. Now, we said already that the most common imagery of salvation in the Bible is a banquet, right? A banquet uh, where you, you sit at God's feast, you sit at God's banquet, okay? How do we approach that banquet? Do you come in and sit in the place of honor at the right hand, at the left hand of Jesus and be like, I'm here, the party can start now? Is that what we do? Not at all. Everything you learned in the book of Luke so far says you come poor in spirit with nothing to offer. You come in with nothing to stand on, nothing to boast in. You take the lowest seat. That's how you approach the banquet. And then God is the one who exalts. He's the one who bestows honor. 
Sure enough, Jesus says, if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. Meaning to the Pharisees, because you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. You're not allowed in the kingdom. But if you humble yourself, if you come to him repentant, take the lowest place and say, I don't even deserve to be here. He exalts you. He exalts you with the kingdom, with his presence for eternity. This is more than just a lesson on humility, though. It exposes the Pharisees who loved seats of honor. Matthew 23, verse 6, Jesus is calling them out. And he's like, the Pharisees love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. Right? He calls them out on this. And he says that like multiple times uh, in the New Testament. And the crowds know this. A Pharisee walks into a, a party. He sits in the best seat. He assumes it belongs to him. And Jesus silences the room with the law. And he embarrasses them for their self-exaltation. And he warns them that they'll be humbled. And then he lays out another one, verse 12. He also said to the man who invited him, to that arch-Pharisee guy, right? He also said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But... When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot pay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Uh, This is just another lesson that Jesus is using to further expose the the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, right? It's, It's not a crime to invite your family and your friends to your events, Jesus is not vilifying that. He's not, uh, he, he's not doing that. What he is doing is he's exposing and he's targeting the Pharisees' motives. He's saying, don't keep inviting people that will pay you back. There's nothing morally commendable about that. Invite people who can't pay you back. That is selfless love. That is godly love. Do that. Why? Because that's precisely who God invites to his banquet. That's precisely who God invites to his kingdom. People who have no way of paying him back. It's people who can do nothing to help you. Those who are are hard to love, hard to care for, hard to build up. They got nothing to to give back. They They have tons of need and they have no means to, uh, to pay you. The best hospitality and care and love is that which is given without expectation of exchange. That's what resembles God's heart the most. When you, when you care for someone, you love someone, you, you help someone who can't pay you back. As an added incentive, Jesus says, but you will be paid back. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be paid back at the resurrection of the just, right? Uh, if, if you have this, this selfless, godly care for someone that, that pours into them and you never get paid back by them, God does make it right. That's what he says, at the resurrection of the just. That's another way of saying when, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, right? That, it, that's just an eschatology statement. I, I, I'm just going to prove that to you real fast. There are two resurrections. Daniel chapter 12 is one of the places where you kind of hear about it. Many of those who sleep or many of those who die 
and are dead in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there are two resurrections, okay? It sounds like there's one, one event where everyone gets, but it's not. It's two different resurrections, which is why they are distinguished that way, okay? The grammar in, uh, in the original language will, uh, will kind of make that evident. Uh, everyone gets resurrected either to life or, uh, or to punishment. You also get that, by the way, in Acts chapter 24, verse 15. In any case, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, it says, since we, Christians, believe that Jesus died and rose again, uh, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the, cry of a, uh, with the cry of command, that's the second coming, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first, first. There are two resurrections, that's the first one. That's all believers returning with Jesus, right? There, there's a, a rapture moment, then seven years later, his actual return, and we're there. Revelation 20, verse 4. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the resurrection happens right before Jesus, who has just returned, reigns for a thousand years, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, this is the first resurrection, right? So there's the resurrection of believers Living in the kingdom, all believers with Jesus in the kingdom for a thousand years, and after that is unbelievers who are from all time who are then resurrected and judged. Okay? Okay. I don't think anyone was uh, curious about that, but, but we did that. Okay. Back to Luke. God will repay those who give selfless godly care. It'll be when the just or when the saved, when the believers are resurrected. That's when you get repaid in the kingdom. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, and you're there. For a thousand years, you're there. And at the end of that thousand years, you're still with them for eternity. It's just earth gets upgraded. So does heaven, and so does hell. Israel didn't expect this. The Pharisees were admired for their piety, and yet Jesus exposes their hypocrisy and their selfishness and their greed. Israel's leaders are hypocrites. If the nation is led in hypocrisy, then God will save other nations and he'll forsake Israel until they repent. Surprise number four, Israel is choosing its disastrous fate. Israel is choosing its disastrous fate. Verses 15 to 24. Uh, let's start in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table, notice they're still at this, this little dining banquet. Uh, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, uh, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed is everyone who's going to be feasting together in the kingdom. So he, Jesus is still at dinner. He's still with that arch Pharisee in his house. You know, all these other Pharisees are there. Uh, he started calling out the Pharisees and all this stuff, and there's all this tension everywhere. And so it seems like this guy is, like, nervous. You know, like, one of those guys that just doesn't like watching his friends fight? And so he's just like, um, but, you know, we're all blessed because we'll all be there. Right? That's kind of what he says. But blessed is everybody who's, like, going to be in heaven, right? So we're, we're all blessed. We can all calm down. You don't need to do the, the calling hypocrisy thing, you know? Blessed is everyone who'll eat bread in the kingdom. We'll all be there feasting. Everyone's blessed. And then Jesus just flatly disagrees, which is, 
Jesus is awesome this way, right? Verse 16. Uh, He said to that guy, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come to this banquet. So that's the setup to the story, right? Jesus tells uh, a story about a man who hosts a banquet. Everybody was invited, okay? And this is like this ancient Near East version of RSVP. Uh, everybody's invited, they say they'll come. And then, when it's time for the banquet, he sends out a servant to go tell them, okay, the food's ready, let's go, let's go. Because they didn't have watches, they didn't have clocks, you know. Someone just goes and starts gathering them. So, uh, so that's what happens. The servant goes uh, to let everyone know it's time. And so, if you've already said, I'll be there, but then when the servant comes and says, the food's ready, and you go, oh, I can't go, that was considered very rude, and in, in some, in some uh, cultures, that was considered an act of warfare, like a, of, of hostility. Each person, though, kind of has like an interesting excuse. Is, is, are they good excuses, bad excuses? In a certain way, they're good excuses. Because technically, the excuses that they give are reasons that uh, Israel could use to get out of, uh, like a man in Israel, a Jewish man, could use to be excused from being drafted into war. Uh, that you, you'll find that in, uh, I'm not going to turn to it, but you can find that in Deuteronomy 20, verses 5 through 7, and in Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, right? You don't go to war if you, uh, if you just bought this thing, you got to go check the land, or you just got this vineyard and grown fruit, and you didn't get to eat of the fruit yet and stuff. And you don't go to, uh, to war if you just got married, you get a whole year off. Jesus gives you a year for your honeymoon, which is awesome. But, so these are all, like, good reasons in the Jewish mind, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I can't come to the banquet. It's, you know, I'm, I'm busy. I got this thing. And then the scripture even says, I'm kind of excused. But see, this is all stuff that they would have known beforehand before they accepted the invitation. Right? Invitation would be a couple days before. You would know if you're buying land. You would know if you're getting married. Right? You would know that stuff. And then even then, if you bought land, why do you have to go examine the land after you bought it? It's too late. You bought it. If you bought oxen, why do you have to go examine them after you bought it? You don't have to. So the reasons come off more like excuses, and they're like personal insults. And so the the host is going to become rightfully angry about this, and it puts him in a dilemma. Because let's say that you started a party, right, and all these people RSVP'd. This happens a lot at our church, right? We have an event, all these people RSVP, and then just don't show up. And you have all this food left over. Somebody bought all this food. What do you do? Do you postpone the party until everybody who wanted to come can come? Do you, is that what you do? All the food goes to waste. All the labor and all the, and the stuff that you put into it. That's not the best idea. So what does the master of this banquet do? Verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to a servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, well, sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. 
So, rather than waste the food, the master of the banquet decides to go ahead with the party and just change the invitees. And this is Jesus saying that God has invited Israel, but Israel is not going to be attending. God will invite all kinds of people to his banquet, his kingdom, you know, the excluded ones, the, the poor, the, the crippled, the blind, the lame, certainly the Gentiles. God is going far beyond the, the boundaries of Israel to take anyone who comes with an eager, repentant heart, they get to come in. Anyone who has polite excuses, get out. Israel was invited first, but has become last. And this, this little parable is like a summary of all that Jesus warned about uh, you know, in like the last few chapters. He's like, Israel, you're doing this to yourself. Israel didn't expect this. It's not just that God is going to save Gentiles and save, you know, the lame and the crippled and the blind, etc. People that the Jews hated, people that the Jews excluded, people that the Jews thought were cursed by God. Of course, that was a surprise for them, but that was already mentioned kind of at the beginning, you know, east and west, north and south, they're going to come to the banquet too. But add to it the way that the blame for Israel's doom is squarely put on their refusal to accept God's invitation. It's not that they were never invited. It's that they were invited, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in. But they weren't in. Something else was more important. They aren't victims of God's wrath. They choose this fate by refusing his invitation to his kingdom on his terms. They look at his terms. They don't like it. He says, repent. They don't like it. He says, trust in Jesus. They don't like it. They're not, they're not automatically going to be in the kingdom just because they're Jewish. No way. They were invited, but they aren't accepting. They aren't repenting. They aren't believing in Christ. And so they're out. Surprise number five. Israel's only hope is Jesus. Israel and our only hope is Jesus, verses 25 to 35. Now, Jesus has, by the way, he has thoroughly dealt with the spiritual bankruptcy of Israel's people and its leaders. He's affirmed that he's a prophet, he's revealing God's word, God's will, he's rebuking sin, he's calling people to repentance, and that makes him the only source of truth, the only source of help, the only source of hope that's available from God to a doomed people. So what should they do, right? He's just called out Israel and your religion doesn't save. Your capital's doomed. Your leaders are hypocrites and you're choosing this. So the question is what now? Verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, to these great crowds, which is not just believers, but it's, it's everybody. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's straight to the point. It's very familiar. And, you know, I, I, we've gone over it a few times on just the, the use of uh, expression in the Near East at that time, right? You don't, he's not saying you have to hate your father and mother. He's also the one that wrote the Ten Commandments and says you have to honor your father and mother, right? So he's not telling you to hate them, but it's a relative expression, not an indicative one. It's a relative expression. Like compared to your love for Jesus, your love for anything else has to look like hatred. 
He's already said that in chapter 12, verses 49 to 53. We talked about it. And he also says you have to be willing to die for Jesus. If that's going to be the consequence for following him, then so be it. You have to be willing to deny yourself and take up your cross. Right? He already said that in chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. We talked about it. That means that following Jesus, faith in Jesus, is not something you can just sprinkle onto your normal routine or squeeze into your everyday life. It's total surrender. And Jesus exhorts the great crowds of people walking around to know exactly what they're getting into if they say that they want to be a Christian. If they want to follow Christ, he says, you have to know exactly what you're getting into. That's the extreme of it. You have to be willing to hate your father and mother if that, that becomes an obstacle to me. By relative comparison, that's what, what it is. You have to be willing to die for me if that's what it comes to, if that's where the persecution goes. And then he's like, like know what you're getting into. Know what it costs. Verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and isn't able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation, asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Like, look at the, the dogmatic, standoffish position that Jesus takes. You have to count the cost. The cost is renouncing everything. And therein, again, lies this very interesting paradox. Have you ever heard from a preacher that salvation is free? The grace of God is a free gift. Is that true? Yes. The gift of salvation is free. The grace of God is free. That is true. But it costs you everything. And that's the conundrum. How can both be true? Well, it, it goes like this. It requires nothing for you to, to gather up or earn or to store up in order to pay. You make no payment. So at any point in your life, you can receive the gift of God, which is free. But receiving it means you let go of everything that you were. That costs you everything. So you don't have to save up to purchase it or to merit it or deserve it. You can at any point receive it because it's free. But you must let go of everything. It costs you all that you have. Everything you think is yours is not yours. Everything that you think is yours is God's. And you go, okay, God is just trusting me to take care of this. And I'm just going to steward it. My money, it's his money. My children, those are his children. And so I, how I treat them, what I do to them, I do to his children. What I won't do for them, then I'm not doing for his children. Your schedule, your energy, your job all that stuff. Following Jesus costs that much. How shameful to start and then, and then quit. How shameful to start and then just kind of fizzle out. Like a, like a tree that, you know, a seed that sprouts up and then gets withered out, 
dried up, scorched by the sun, or a seed that sprouts and then gets choked out by weeds. What a shame. What good is faith that starts off good and then stops being good? And Jesus says that, verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the answer to that is you can't. It's impossible. It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That is a consistent description of Jesus, uh, by Jesus that faith, saving faith, endures till the end. Faith that doesn't endure till the end is not saving faith. It's that seed that sprouts and withers, a seed that sprouts and gets choked out. It doesn't produce fruit. It's like someone who builds a tower and then stops or goes to war and then stops. It doesn't complete the work. It's not productive. It's not victorious. That's not saving faith. Now, certainly in this, Israel would be surprised because Jesus has called out Israel. Israel's religion doesn't save. Its capital is doomed. Its leaders are hypocrites and it's choosing its own disastrous fate. What now? Well, their only hope is Jesus. They're walking around thinking they're following him because they're with him. And they're wondering what next and the solution to the problem. What is it? You know, Israel's doomed and stuff. What's, what's the solution then? What's the climax here? And he gives it to them. You want salvation? You can only get it from him. And to, to be saved by Jesus, you have to renounce everything. He's their only hope. It means they have, to have, uh, they have to abandon their wayward religion, their hypocrisy. They have to choose him above all else. Now, if you remember, the question that started it all off was, will the saved be few? And the answer to that is yes. Because not many are going to want to surrender everything. Most people are going to just try to squeeze it in, sprinkle it on. Like, I like the Jesus thing. I like the church thing. I, I love the people. I like that I can be so open and stuff. I like that I'm not judged. But I will not repent. Will the saved be few? Yes. A better question to ask is, will the saved include you? Do you renounce everything and love Jesus above all? Do you abandon your hypocrisy? Do you care for others selflessly? Will you live completely and surrender to him, be on the same mission that he's on, to spend your life bringing others to salvation, inviting others to the banquet? Do you follow him 100% in how you believe and worship, and commit, and give, and confess, and evangelize, and submit, and serve? Do you strive, and agonize, and fight every day against your sinfulness, and your worldliness? And do you worship, and love, and obey Jesus as Savior? If so, then someday you'll die, and you'll go to heaven. And we're not Israel, but, but for us, when we get to heaven, there'll be three surprises for us. 
The first one is who's not there. I think when you get to heaven, you'll look around and you'll say, I thought he or she was going to be here. I think you'll be surprised by who's not there. Second, I think you'll be surprised by who is there. I think you'll look around and say, I can't believe you're here. I didn't expect that. I didn't know. And third, the third surprise, I think, is that you, you who had nothing to offer, who had nothing to stand on, nothing to boast in, who had only need and not worth, will be sitting at a banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and a whole bunch of people that are poor, crippled, blind, and lame, who are now rich and healthy, seeing, dancing, feasting in the kingdom with Jesus the King. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, how absolute is your standard of righteousness that you do not yield and you do not lower your standard. You don't compromise. Perfection is the standard and we fall short. We have no standing with you. We do not qualify. So Lord, to be in your presence we need to be saved from your judgment. And that can only be done by you. And so we need to be saved by you, by your grace. And we thank you so much that it's free. We thank you so much that no matter where we're at and what we've done, what our story is, that at any point, we can lay everything down and say, I give it all to Jesus. but we know, Lord, that it costs us everything. That we give up our right to all that we have and are. And we say, Jesus is Lord. And I follow him. I embark on the same journey and the same mission to carry my own cross and invite others to salvation to bring them into that banquet. We pray, Lord, that we would not be surprised at your judgment, at your grace. We hope, Lord, that we would have such a clear understanding that you save by grace those who repent. That when we get to heaven, we don't need to be surprised. Don't let us be deceived by a whole bunch of good works and grand achievements. Don't let us be deceived by a bunch of gifting and charisma and confidence. Lord, we want to be a people who places our trust in you. A hundred percent in you. May we surrender, lay everything down to know that it's only by your grace that we're saved. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the work of Jesus. May we keep growing in it. 
not in a way that just tries to add it on, sprinkle it in, squeeze it in, but that surrenders to you completely and follows after you. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.